Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. This is Dan Godby, medical editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the spring 2020 edition of the JSOM podcast. Besides the three articles that Josh and Alex review, others worth taking a look at are the article on the use of drones, and especially for us guys in the pre-hospital and law enforcement communities, the articles on Reboa use and multitasking on cognitive performance. For this particular edition, I'd like to give a shout out to retired Master Sergeant Rick Hines, who will be giving the review of the freeze-dried plasma article. Rick is a respected colleague and trusted comrade who brings a wealth of knowledge, skill, and experience to us and the entire regiment, particularly through his continued work at the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Center. We at the JSOM are always interested in hearing from our readership, both with comments and feedback, but especially with article submissions for publication. Also, remember that JSOM publishes the quarterly TCCC updates. And now, here's Josh and Alex with the podcast. And welcome back to the spring edition of the JSOM. So nice to chat with you again, Josh. How does it feel to have the privilege of being the first surgical PA in the military to be working at one of the civil partnerships? Well, Alex, honestly, the honor is hardly all mine. I have been standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before me, uh, people like Major Seth Holland, currently retired, Matt Douglas, and others who have worked tirelessly to really push the PA profession to this point. So really, I'm just the benefactor of all their hard work. So I'm just really thankful to be here. But have you had any good patients this week? You make me feel like such a terrible human being. Yeah, I was going to mention all of the... (laughs) I'm back in civilian practice. And uh, around here, we unfortunately are bearing the scourge of opiates and illicit substances here on the streets with our, our homeless and especially with our mentally ill, which is a terrible catastrophe and certainly shouldn't be made light of. But I will say that I have now had a string of folks who have been stabbed in the neck and nothing important gets hit. And I got to say, you know, you would think that that's a pretty high value real estate and you you could do some damage there. But (laughs) surprisingly, nobody's really bagged anything important. Uh, Get some good deck explorations out of it, but don't see a lot of injury or illness out of it. And uh, for the sake of our patients, I am so glad to see that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's tiger country after all, Alex. It's, it's dangerous real estate. <laughs> well, uh, we've got a couple of really great articles this month and some guest editorials and some, some other important highlights. So why don't we stop waxing poetic here, as you like to say, and get right into it. And the first article we were interested in reviewing this month is an inventory of the combat medics aid bag by Shower Naylor et al. from the Institute of Surgical Research and Brook Army Medical Center. And this is actually a prospective cross-sectional descriptive survey study, which means that being a descriptive study, it's not actually going to be a PICO study, which is more analytic. So this one just has a population and an outcome. And so I prefer to use the French pronunciation that we will be looking at the poo of this study. 
So uh, the population studied are 68 whiskeys assigned to a brigade combat team at JBLM. And there were a total of 44 participants in the 7th ID. And the outcome was a survey instrument that was used to evaluate all of the equipment within the medic's aid bag. Looking at the study in detail, they actually uh, laid out their argument quite well. And what they said is that despite having T-Tri-C around for 20 years, and I'll quote from the end of their background, there is no published data that describes and evaluates the combat medic aid bag and its capacity to facilitate T-Tri-C recommended life-saving interventions. So they establish the gap that they're going to fill with their literature. And then they do a really great job of specifically saying, what is the goal of this investigation? And again, uh, reading out of their manuscript, they say, we seek to assess combat medic materiel preparedness to employ T-Tri-C recommended interventions by the inventorying active duty combat medic aid bags. So for their methods, they sent out a solicitation to those 68 whiskeys uh, with or without special skill identifiers. They were assigned to the brigade combat team and asked for those volunteers to come in on a specified day and just essentially do a bag dump and see what gear was in their bag. They then broke up the inventoried equipment into the main components of T-Tri-C that we're aware of. So every piece of equipment got put in one of the silos that was either hemorrhage control, airway management, pneumothorax treatment, or volume resuscitation. Additionally, they obtained a demographic information from participants looking at their rank as well as number of deployments. And their conclusions should be no surprise to pretty much anyone in the military, which is most medics carried materiel that addressed the common causes of preventable death on the battlefield. However, most materiel stored in aid bags were not T-Tri-C preferred items. Moreover, there was a small subset of medics that were not prepared to handle the major causes of death on the battlefield with the current state of their aid bag. And so there are a couple of probably editorial things that are worth noting about this generally well-done manuscript. Uh, and I think one is paying attention to the limitations, which the authors did a really good job identifying. But, you know, in my mind, if I'm thinking about what is the take-home message from an article in JSOM specifically to a soft medic about what they can do to change today, this article may or may not be that helpful. And it's specifically because these were all conventional forces medics. None had any uh, soft identifiers. It was limited to a brigade combat team, so does not represent the entire military. And then more importantly, just from a data perspective, this was a convenience sample with an unknown denominator, which can then really cause concern for selection bias within our sampled population. And then, of course, we also see in their data set that the majority of participants were E4s, and the majority had not deployed, which, as you know well, after a couple of deployments, your aid bag gets a whole lot different with what material you're going to put in there, whether it's issued by the unit or whether it's self-procured. And, and as you know, Josh, that ends up often being the case. But I think this really highlights an um, ongoing difficulty within the military that was specifically identified to me by, obviously, 
uh, somebody smarter than me, which is to say pretty much anyone, which is that in the military, it's just so difficult to keep up with the times. And that's because once we are able to generate literature, which shows best practices, that literature really then has to be rolled into military doctrine and protocol, which can take a couple of years. And then once it's into doctrine and protocol, then it has to be rolled into logistics and purchasing. And that can also take a couple of years. And I think that may be one of the components of the problem that was highlighted in this manuscript. And though it is a very select subset of sample population, there may in fact be a larger message here. And I really applaud them for doing a great job of setting up the gap in their background, which is, you remember, Josh, Seth told us we had to do. Um, and then having a very specific question, how many times do we see research? We don't actually even know what they're asking. And these guys did a really good job of honing in on that. Uh, what did you think, Josh? So I have two sort of thought processes with this article. One is very specific and research driven. And the other is wider and based on my experience, especially back in 2005 when I was in the military as a medic. So specifically, I kind of would have preferred that they had their statistical analysis section a bit better fleshed out, talking about means, medians, normally distributed, IQRs, and standard deviations. What did they plan on doing? But that wasn't really sort of like well discussed. And then the table one was kind of unclear. I really wish they had taken a little bit more time showing their data in a more in a clearer sense. You know, I think you're right. The findings of this article is kind of concerning if you think about it because the bct is the first line it's where things hit first so if we have all these medics especially these e3s and e4s who haven't deployed yet who aren't getting the supplies needed that means two things one they're not getting supplied and that's concerning and two if they're not getting supplied are they not getting trained i'm sure they're getting good training at fort sam houston they're getting what the what they need to start with the very basic to, as you've told me before alex the very basics that you build upon to get yourself forward. But are they not getting that advanced training at their unit in order to make those intelligent choices about what needs to go in their aid bag? TC3 has been around for a long time. Is it still not hitting at the at the lowest level? Or maybe it's, it's still getting hit, like they still understand it, but it's not translating into those second, third order effects. Are people not talking to their soldiers and saying, hey, listen, when you approach a casualty, and you go through March, HABCs, whatever your algorithm is, how does that translate to your aid bag? Again, this is one BCT, it's a convenient sample, but if this is truly out there, then this is kind of a concerning finding. And if we get into a major land conflict, again, and we're not dealing with the basics, then we, this is concerning. So those, those are just my thoughts. Hey, and to review this next article, I have Rick Hines from the JSOM TC. Go ahead, Rick. All right, well, I'll start out with the title of the article. It's called Freeze-Dried Plasma Administration Within the Department of Defense Trauma Registry. The authors are Carmen M. Cuenca from the Institute of Surgical Research, Gregory Charney, MD, from USIS, Stephen Schauer. He's a DOMS with the ISR, USIS, BAMSI, and the 95th Medical Wing at Joint Base San Antonio. This paper does not include the type of paper it is in the title or the abstract, but it does appear to be a research or an information paper on freeze-dried plasma administration within the Department of Defense trauma registry. 
with a look towards viability, availability, and training required to implement its use within the DoD. The abstract states, hemorrhage is common among the combat injured and plasma plays a vital role in blood product resuscitation. Regarding freeze-dried plasma, U.S. forces have had limited access to this product when compared to other countries. In 2018, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration provided emergency authorization for Department of Defense utilization through the newly congressionally directed military use pathway. We described the documented use of freeze-dried plasma by U.S. forces by performing a secondary analysis of two previously described data sets from the Department of Defense Trauma Registry in 11 identified cases. The median age was 28. Cases were mostly, most frequently male, part of Operation Enduring Freedom, U.S. affiliation, and injured by explosive or gunshot wound. The medium injury severity score was 21. Most did not receive a massive transfusion. Most survived to hospital discharge. Ongoing surveillance is warranted to optimize FDP's implementation into military pre-hospital guidelines, training, and doctrine. To talk about the pros of the article, the paper showed anecdotal evidence of positive outcome for patient. Most of the patients survived. I believe there was only one death noted. Uh, so anecdotally, that, that shows a positive outcome for the patients. They also gave a really good historical recap of the efforts to get approval to use freeze-dried plasma. This was a, uh, a struggle, and as a disclaimer here, I was one of the early assistant investigators on the USASOC freeze-dried plasma protocol. I'm glad to see it become available to the rest of the military. Uh, they also provided a very thorough list of references. The conclusion that more research is needed is accurate. Also, a goal of optimizing the implementation into pre-hospital guidelines, training, and doctrine is a great idea. This should be addressed concurrently with the increased availability military-wide. So just like whenever we have a new piece of equipment or a new medication, new capability presented to us, we need to have a training plan to be able to implement along with the feeling of the new procedure or technique or device. So now moving on to the cons of the article. In the data acquisition, the authors mention that the data range is from 2007 to 2017. I'm sure this is accurate, but FDP was not authorized to be used on U.S. forces until 2011. So I think realistically our data set is about six years instead of 10 years. To reach a valuable conclusion, I believe that a larger patient cohort would have been of more value. Possibly reference to foreign research in order to, to reach a more definitive conclusion. When you look at foreign forces, you can look at how their conventional forces train, implement, and use this product and have over the years. You can also look at patient outcomes in a larger population, some of the complications that may have arised in those populations. While the historical recap was accurate and thorough, it didn't mention the role of USASOC in pursuing and gaining approval to the start of using freeze-dried plasma. The paper mentions that the FDA approval to collaborate with the French came about due to the lengthy timeline for FDA approval for a U.S.-based product. More accurately, there was not a U.S.-based product. That just didn't exist. So to comply with that, an expanded use protocol had to be requested and granted by the FDA, and that's what was done. There's a mention of access 
restriction to special operations forces data limiting their case data. While I was involved in this program, all patient data stripped of PII was put into the JTS database and should have been available to them for research. So I'm not sure if their data set included soft personnel or not. They kind of made it sound like it may have excluded some soft data, but I don't see how that would have been possible. However, policies may have changed after I retired and have stepped away from the program, so I'm not sure on that. While the paper mentions the product's benefit to the U.S. military forces will not be fully realized until use becomes more widespread among non-soft forces, this is more a matter of supply and demand. The French can only make so much as this is made by the French government, not just a French company. Uh, This is a very restricted and regulated process for the French government to produce this. This is verified by their version of the European FDA, and expanding the availability of this product is limited. So until we have a U.S.-based company that picks up the mantle and moves forward with this, which there are one or two that are in the process of doing so at this time. So we can look forward to a U.S.-based company providing this product with FDA approval sometime in the future. As it becomes more available, then we'll see that expanded use across all military branches. And I would expect to see incorporation into uh, SOPs and training regiments accordingly. So my recommendations, broaden the patient cohort to include soft personnel if they were not included originally, foreign nation patients, and review foreign allied forces implementation of this product into their pre-hospital guidelines, training, and doctrine. Other than that, it, it was informative, but it was, I agree with their conclusion that there is more research to be done, and I think that it should be pretty straightforward to implement training and implement this in the protocols as the product becomes available in the, in the future. Awesome. It's really helpful to have your historic perspective on this, Rick, especially since you were on some of the initial studies to work on this. So thank you for your response. Thank you, sir. And now, a message from our underwriters. You listen to our show because you strive to be the very best for yourself and others. And just as you might select the perfect tourniquet, why not drink the perfect coffee? The veterans who make Red Clover coffee are great people making great coffee who give generously to great causes. Help make the world a better place, one cup of coffee at a time. Red Clover Coffee is offering all JSON podcast listeners 10% off your purchase. Go to redclovercoffee.com and enter the discount code JSOMONLINE at checkout. That's redclovercoffee.com. Making the world a better place, one cup of coffee at a time. All right, Alex, it's time to go for a deep dive. It's time to talk a little nerdy. Yes, Alex, it's time to talk a little nerdy. So, Alex, we're going to be talking about the expression of high mobility group box 1 protein in a polytrauma model during ground transport and simulated high altitude evacuation by Choi Roberts et al. All of these people were working out of the U.S. Army ISR in Fort Sam Houston, Texas. These investigators were looking at 15 Yorkshire swine who were injured and then run through an altitude chamber to investigate if there was systemic expression of the HMGB1 protein. And their primary outcome was looking to see what was the level of HMGB1 expression. 
so these subjects were obtained, they were anesthetized, and then they were cannulated for ECLS or extracorporeal life support. After this was completed, they ran through an altitude simulation uninjured at three levels. The first was at 5,000 feet to simulate a UAV evacuation. The second was at 8,000 feet to simulate a regular evacuation under normal pressurized conditions. And then the last, they had simulated emergency decompression at 30,000 feet. At each of these levels, they took blood samples to test for the expression of this HMGB1 protein. After this was completed, they then injured the subjects in a systematic way and let them sit overnight. They then took them back and ran them through that same altitude chamber, the same three levels for the same three simulations, taking blood samples to see if there was expression. And then after the completion of the experiment, they then took samples of lung tissue to test for the severity of injury at the lung level and then also to test for the protein expression in the tissue. So right up front, they were able to demonstrate expression of the protein in the lungs. And all of the animals across the board had a fairly similar level of injury to their lungs. It is interesting to note that six subjects died prior to the flight simulation due to their severity of injuries. The other nine were then run through the simulation. And they found that the HMGB1 expression was highest at 8,000 feet on day two, but then decreased afterwards, remaining elevated from baseline even after the ascension to 30,000 feet. Well, Josh, you know, at this time in the show, we like to go ahead and steal that 11-point quality assessment checklist from the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine that other listeners can also purloin from the interwebs. So first question for you, did this manuscript have a clearly focused question? Yes, it did. Did the authors use an appropriate approach for their question? I think so. It's a pilot study. They're trying to determine if this is even expressed in the blood at all. So I think this pilot study is an excellent entry into future studies on this subject. Was the cohort recruited in an appropriate manner? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I think so. When you look at how they injured the animals and then their examination, they actually injured all of the lungs in a fairly equal way from the results section. So I think that's yes. And was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? So they got pretty deep in the weeds on the science. And I think it was, but someone out there may have a better understanding of the science and I may have missed something. So I'm gonna say yes, but our listeners, if we miss something, let us know on, on social media. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Yeah, I think they did. Again, this is a tough pilot study with some new technology, but I think they did the best they could. And was the following of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results and the estimate of risk? I think the results are precise for this pilot study, and they give us enough information to drive forward to a bigger study. And do you believe the results? Yes. Can the results be applied to your patient population? Not yet. It's a work in progress. And do the results of this study fit with other available evidence and articles? I'll be frank with you. I can't tell you yes or no. I don't 
I don't know of any other articles that look at this specific protein. Fair enough. Yeah, this appears to be a very well done, robust, as you mentioned, basic science study that was done by a number of our colleagues and folks that I one day hope to rub elbows with. And I look forward to hearing a little bit more from the authors with your interview. And here on the podcast, I have the uh, authors on the article, Dr. Andrew Braczynski and Dr. Jay Choi. Welcome. Hello. Hello. So our first question is, could you please explain what HMGB1 is and its pathophysiological role that led you to explore this research? Dr. Choi? HMGB1 works as a co-transcription factor in normal cell nucleus. However, in condition of the cell stress or damage like a trauma, the HMGB1 molecule is released into the extracellular space and moved to the bloodstream to work as a damage-associated molecule patterns, DEMS, which is the trigger of all of the cytokines and chemokines mediated by the toll-like receptor 4. Especially in current our research, we had investigated for the expression of the HMGB1 level from the normal condition to chest condition and extracorporeal life support care with ground and high altitude transport to understand HMGB1's function as an injury stability biomarkers and furthermore to use as an indicator of the systemic inflammation syndrome and multi-organ failure at the point of care. Has this been studied in the past, or is this something novel? Yeah, Josh, this is uh, Andrew Baczynski. Thanks for your question and um, the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Uh, we respect your society very much, and we're very happy that we can communicate some of our work to you all. Uh, so this particular research has never been done before for a couple of reasons. One of them is that we have a very unique translational capability in San Antonio, which has to do with a um, coincidental co-location of a translational large animal ICU with an asset that's really rare, which is we have some high altitude chambers where you can mimic various altitudes and duration of aeromedical evacuation. And so the confluence of those two factors, of us being able to study this in unique combat relevant translational models, also during a time frame that mimics prolonged field care, some grand, ground evacuation, some high altitude evacuation, really puts this work in a completely new context. And so although HMGB1 as an assay and a kit exists commercially, and people have used it in various small animal models primarily, as well as some models of large animals with sepsis, to our knowledge, no one has really translated that to a combat-relevant platform that special ops medics would care about. Awesome. Thanks a lot. So could you explain the current gap in literature that necessitated the study? For instance, what is a deficiency in POC lactate testing that requires your surrogate biomarker? That's an excellent question, Josh. So as you know, lactate testing requires a blood draw. Now, there is some technology out there that um, pursues lactate measurements transcutaneously, which is under development and potentially could be useful one day. However, lactate is a metabolic marker, 
okay? So just like it can go up because you're in the gym or because you're exercising heavily or let's say a special op medic climbs a mountain and comes down, it's not necessarily without any other additional data a reflective of a certain injury. However, HMGB1 is somewhat distinct because it's only activated during injury development. And so there you have a basically a complementary and yet uh, more specific insight that there might be a trauma in the background or the underlying cause of increase in HMGB1. Regarding the literature gap, um, again, it's very important to understand that HFGB1 by itself is not a new metric. However, as applicable to combat relevant trauma models, it is, and especially in our iteration here, it should be relevant to your readership because we mimic ground and high altitude evacuation in this study, and so it really shows that during altitude and trauma, it might be a very useful marker in addition or above and beyond lactate. So what it sounds like you're saying is that HMGB1 is actually a more specific to injury biomarker versus lactate. That is correct. So our next question is, did the levels increase in an expected way? And did you expect the levels to drop off in the second day when they did? So Josh, if uh, you or the readers look at the figure five, it's really interesting because on the top, you see the expression of HMGB1 over the duration of the study. And to be perfectly honest with you, we did not know whether the changes will be uh, developed in this pattern. We suspected that trauma will increase HMG1 expression, but on day one, these animals served as their own controls. In other words, they underwent conditions of air, air medical evacuation without trauma. And as you or the readers can appreciate, the changes in HMGB1 were not drastic. It came up a little bit, but certainly not enough to compare to day two when the trauma was present. And so we did expect that it will go up with trauma. We did expect that it will go down after trauma. But what's particularly useful about that study is that it shows that during a medical evacuation, HMGB1 does not go up in someone who's transported uh, without traumatic injury, but it is specific to trauma uh, at altitude. That's actually hugely enlightening. Thank you for that. I find myself trying to tease out some of the more important things, and sometimes it's implied but not expressly stated. So thank you for saying that. This is, can I, can I make a comment? Yeah. That upper graph, it's a little confusing what we've done in the second and the third. But if you look at HMGB1, the study is repeating itself. On day one, the animals undergo ground evacuation and then altitude flight at 5,000, uh, 8,000, and 30,000 K, and then come down without injury. And then they spend the night in the ICU. On the day two, they undergo the same flights and altitudes and duration, but after chest trauma. And so that's why the graph so insightful is that HMGB1 is specific to trauma at altitude and is not there at altitude without trauma on day one, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So next, we'd like to ask, what is the purpose in measuring the plasma-free hemoglobin? Your primary outcome was to find out how the levels of HMGB1 changed during the experiment, but the plasma-free hemoglobin seemed ancillary and likely incurred some expense in performing these experiments. So why did you measure it? Um, thank you, Josh. That's a very good point. Uh, plasma-free hemoglobin is one of the main indicators of red blood cell and hemoglobin breakdown. 
in other words, hemolysis. According to the report, hemolysis is increasing due to the traumatic injury like chest contusion or the TBI injury. Also, it is good indicator for the hemolysis while using extracorporeal life support device like ECMO treatment. Right, and just to add to that, because the extracorporeal life support was used throughout both days of the study, on day one without injury and on day two with injury, it was important to discern what were the levels of plasma-free hemoglobin, especially in parallel um, as changing with the HMGB1 uh, variable in this particular model. So uh, HMGB1 is unique in this trauma condition and study, so as plasma-free hemoglobin. And although it was an added cost, it really goes a long way to explain to clinicians what its role is, both independently and in association with HMGB1 expression. Excellent. That really clears that up. Thank you very much. And then our last question is, what is the next step in your research? Are you aware of any technology and development that will me measure HMGB1 in a prolonged field care setting? And uh, how much longer do you think before this hits prime time? So the next step in our research is really continuing with exploration of HMGB1 um, by adding a few trauma components that are really critical for the combat casualty care portfolio, specifically TBI, traumatic brain injury, um, with and without extracorporeal life support. And so we will continue to accumulate unique data set in our model where we use uh, round-the-clock ICU capabilities in association with prolonged field care timelines, up to 72 hours of care, finishing with a flight at various altitudes. Regarding the technology in development, so the HMGB1 exists as a commercially available kit today. You can buy it and use it in a lab. However, there's at least two companies that we're aware of that we're working with that eagerly await awaiting our results and are planning to translate this to a handheld capability. And so the time frame on this, in my opinion, would be about a year or two. Again, depending on their commercial partner that they would engage, could be sooner. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything you gentlemen would like to add before we uh, let you go? Well, uh, we wanted to thank you for the opportunity to communicate uh, via this podcast. Uh, hopefully, um, the manuscript will be received with um, the right amount of attention from special operation forces who are in the spearhead of most of our uh, critical care conditions. We're committed in our lab to develop further handheld technologies or point of injury life-saving interventions to help um, uh, recovery from injuries immediately after incurring them. And so that's our commitment to you all. And thank you very much for uh, being a conduit to the research that we do as well as our colleagues across the country. Awesome. Well, Dr. Choi, Dr. Pachinsky, thanks for your time and your excellent research. Hey, if you guys haven't read this or you have read this, I encourage you to go back after listening to this and reread their manuscript and get a better sense of what they were trying to communicate. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thank you very thank much, you. Josh. Well, that's another wrap. There's plenty of other really, really good material in the journal, and we encourage you to flip through that when you've got downtime in the team room. Especially encourage everyone to read Mike Ketzler's outstanding unconventional warfare article, as always. And 
If you like what we're doing, please let us know. If you are interested in being one of our guest medic reviewers, we'd sure love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at podcast at jsomonline.org. And as you can tell, we have no idea what we're doing. So if you've got ideas for how we can do this better, also please feel free to let us know. Just make it safe for work if you're going to put it on the interwebs or social media. But uh, really appreciate all that you do. Thanks so much for your help making this a better product for you. And we'll see you next time. This is Sofia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions.